Well, good morning, church. It is wonderful to see you all this morning in Wills Point. Uh, to those that are joining us online, those that are joining us in Wills or in Edgewood, I uh, just want to say welcome uh, to those in Edgewood. Uh, miss you guys this morning. Um, for those that don't know me, my, nom- my name is Cody King, and I'm the Edgewood campus pastor uh, for Stone Point Church. And uh, I get the privilege this morning of being over here and sharing uh, with you guys this morning. Many of you I haven't been able to see in quite a while, so it's been a joy to uh, to share some smiles and some handshakes and some hugs and some conversations. If you have your Bibles, um, we're going to be uh, wrapping up Romans chapter 13 um, this morning. Um, in this back half of chapter 13, Paul, uh, he deals with um, the second half of the believer's civil responsibility. The things that 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 we're meant to do as we interact with other people. In chapter 12, Paul laid out how we are to um, interact and and love one another. Um, And then last week we looked at how we're to subject ourselves to the governing authorities uh, that God has instituted to be over our lives, which displays love. And then Paul this morning lays out how we're to respond to everyone else, like what that looks like for the believer. Uh, So government's... Uh, They exercise their authority through the rule of law, but they're instituted by God. So God's law will trump that law in every sense. Um, But now last week as we wrapped up there in verse 7, Paul says these words. He says, pay to all what is owed to them. But as he moves on to verse 8, he says similar, but then he shifts. He transitions in a way from that to something else. So he says in 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Verse 8, he says now, owe no one anything, he says, except to love each other. So the idea is that if we're to pay all that is owed to anyone, the implication is is that we aren't supposed to owe anything. If we do owe someone something, give that thing to them as it is owed. So the idea is as soon as it's paid, we no longer owe them. So we're free from being indebted to anyone for anything. But he says, if there's anything that we do owe and should owe, he says, it is to love each other. We're to give that away in every sense. Owe nothing to anyone except to love then. Our obligation is to love. So the one thing that we're meant to owe, the one debt that is meant to be continuous in the life of a believer is to love each other, is to love other people. Now, the word to love there, it's a verb. It's an action word. Oftentimes, when we think of love, and oftentimes in the purest sense in which the world would say, it ends up being a romantic love. A man and a woman fall in love, as if it's something that they were walking along, stubbed their toe, tripped and fell down into love. That's not the idea when it comes to a biblical picture of what love is. Here, Paul says it's an action word. We are to love each other. But the word is agapo, or agapao, I'm sorry. But it's the verb form of the noun agape. Many of us have heard of agape love. But agape love is the benevolent love of God. It's Him loving us, you and I, with an agape love, so much so that He would send His Son to die on the cross for our sin. Now Paul tells us this is the kind of love that you and I should have for each other. So love, then, is a sacrificial love. It's not a romantic love. It's not, it's not just liking someone a really a whole, whole lot. 
It's loving them sacrificially. That's why Paul tells husbands, you know, tells wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. But he says, husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loves the church, who gave himself up for her. So we're to sacrifice for our wives in that context. But the idea with agape love is to be sacrificial. And that is why he says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, verse 9, he qualifies that statement. If he says we're to owe nothing to anyone except to love each other, and the one that loves fulfills the law, here's how in verse 9. He says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, he says, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right, so he's quoting from the Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship to God and how we respond to Him. The remaining six deal with our relation to everyone else. Four of those are listed here, and they, the ones that are listed, they deal explicitly with our desire to serve ourselves. But church, not only serve ourselves, in so doing these things, we serve ourselves at the expense of a victim. He tells us not to murder. But if murder does happen, it's one person doing something selfishly to a victim. To steal from someone is to take from someone. They are the victim of that sin. Same with coveting. Same with adultery. There's always a victim in it. But every one of these deals with ourselves. They're self-serving. And they're exact opposite of sacrificial. So Paul says we're to love one another. Owe nothing except to do that thing. And it's a sacrificial love. Paul says you fulfill the law in love. The law says you don't do these specific four things that he lists deal with serving self. So it's not sacrificial. But they're summed up in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now the question becomes, who is your neighbor? What are you talking about there, God, in the Ten Commandments when it comes to your neighbor? Who is it that we're meant to love if we're meant to love our neighbor? So the word is plesion. It's any other person. It means thy fellow man in the Greek. But to the Jew, the Jew's neighbor, the way they would view who their neighbor is, it's any member of the Hebrew nation or the Israelite commonwealth. So we have Jews and we have Gentiles. The Jew believes we're the people of God, and they believe their neighbor is the people of God. Anyone that's outside of the people of God is not their neighbor. They're just someone that exists on this planet that's not God's chosen people. So when they look at the law, and the law says to love your neighbor as yourself, their view is, I'm going I'm to love the Hebrew, but I'm not told to love anybody else. In Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, this gives us a really good picture here, but also gives us a fantastic picture of what Jesus says about such a thing. So in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, Luke tells us this. He says, and behold, a lawyer, this is now a really smart guy, that he's a lawyer, so he knows the law. Right? So a really smart guy, a lawyer, stood up and to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now note his question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he said to him, or he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. So the discourse should have ended right there. You have a really, really smart guy, a lawyer that knows the law. He asks the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus asks him, what's the law say? The man answers verbatim what the law says, and he answers correctly. And Jesus says, there you go. You do that, you will live. So it should end right there, but it doesn't. Why? Because this really, really smart guy thinks he understands the law when he doesn't. So he follows up with a second question in 29. He says, but he, desiring to justify himself, you can note that for yourself. I don't know if you use colors in God's word. Usually cautions or warnings in God's word, it's a highlight in yellow or red. This would be a red highlight for me. Seeking to justify himself, this is how he responds to Jesus. And he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's already framed in his mind what God's word tells him in response to this and who he's to love and how he's supposed to have eternal life. He's trying to justify himself. Now, who is my neighbor? In his mind, I've got him. I'm seeking to test Jesus. I've got him right here. What's he going to say to this? And here's how Jesus brilliantly responds. Jesus says, he replied, uh, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, a priest, in this context, a priest and a Levite, these are Jews, Right, So their response, when they see this person that needs help, they just go to the other side of the road. That's their response. But then verse 33, but a Samaritan. Now, who is a Samaritan? At this point in time, there's, there's and right kind of in the middle of Judea is Samaria. And the Samaritans were half-breeds. At one point in time in Jewish history, you had Jewish people that would go and they would intermarry and intermingle with this people that were Gentile people. And they, were, they would make half-breeds, so to speak. They weren't Jews, but they were made of Gentile blood. So they were called Samaritans, and Jews hated them. They avoided this area of Samaria. They would walk around this area instead of walking through it. This person was assuredly not among the Israelite commonwealth. And in verse 35, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. In verse 36, Jesus asked the man, the lawyer, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And then he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So some things to note here about this really, really smart guy. What was his question in verse 29? His question is, who's my neighbor? What he's trying to get at, who is it that I'm meant to love as myself? Jesus, tell me who that person is that I am meant to love. Who is my neighbor? Where's the emphasis going? Who's my neighbor? Where's my responsibility to my neighbor? But how does Jesus ask him in verse 36? Jesus says, which of three, these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? You see how he flips it back on itself? Our question can be, who is it that I'm meant to love in this commandment? 
as that really, really smart guy lawyer that thinks he understands God's word. Who am I meant to love? Jesus flips it and he says, who was the neighbor? In this sense, the neighbor was not the man who needed something. The neighbor was the man that had the resources to provide for the need. So a person that is a neighbor is a person who also has neighbors. So according to the Jew, their neighbors was the Israelite commonwealth and no one else. It's easy to love your brother, but it's difficult to love someone that's not your brother. Jesus, according to Christ, your neighbor is any other person, respective of nation or religion or belief system, whatever it may be. It's any person that you or I are to come into contact, any stranger that we may meet is our neighbor. And we are to be neighborly to them. So Paul says to love your neighbor, and Jesus says to be a neighbor who loves. Be the neighbor you want others to be to you. So what's, what's the bedrock idea there in a the way? Do unto others as you would have them do to yourself. We teach that. We may say that all the time. Do we really believe that to be the case? But simply put, if, 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 if you do to others as you would have them do to you, that is the idea of, of loving your neighbor as yourself. When it comes to these commands, you know, you don't, we don't steal from ourselves. One, it'd be a little bit weird. It's already ours. How do we steal from ourselves? But we don't covet ourselves. We don't do these things to ourselves because we care about ourselves. We wouldn't wrong ourselves. And it goes back to the idea of husbands to wives. You live with one another in such a way and you care for one another in such a way as you would have that person do to you. That is the idea of being sacrificial, is giving first. So back to Romans 10. Paul says here, he says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So all the law, all the moral law, finds itself, finds its basis in the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are summed up in this word that you shall love. Agape, agapao, love one another sacrificially in all things. Now, verse 11, he kind of shifts again. He says, besides this. Now, there's debate among, among scholars in some way as to what is Paul referring to when he says besides this. Is he talking about just simply what we've covered here? Besides this, that we are to love our neighbor as ourself and then continues on a thought or does it encompass further? I believe that in context, it encompasses everything we read in chapter 13. If we're told to subject ourselves to the governing authorities, and how we're to respond to that authority, and then how we're to love one another. If we put it all under the umbrella of civil responsibility, I would believe that Paul is getting to, besides this, all of that, this is what you should know. And he says, you do know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So he introduces something to us that should bring about an urgency for everything that he said. All the instruction that Paul has given us. How we are to love one another as believers. How we are to subject ourselves to governing authorities. And how we are to love everyone else as ourselves. There's an emphasis that comes with doing those things. Because he says that you know the time that the hour has come. For salvation is nearer than when you first believe. Now, it's not personal salvation. What Paul is not, he's not saying that you're more saved now than when you first believed. That's not the idea. You're saved then, you were sealed then. But what does he mean by salvation? 
It was the equivalent of being rescued from darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God. In Colossians, he tells the church at Colossae in this in chapter 1, verse 13. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now, this is, this is a positional saving. As we talked about last week, there's that fifth kingdom that God is going to come. He's going to demolish all of the nations now, all the kingdoms now, and set up His kingdom. That kingdom has not come, but God says, it says, we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to His kingdom. So it's positional, but it's also a rescue that is going to happen in the future. Hebrews 9.28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So if you and I have salvation, we've been saved. It's not a second saving that we have. It's God coming to receive us, to save us, rescue us, uh, us in a physical sense from the darkness in which we live. And he says, you know the time. Keros. It's a fixed, indefinite time. It is something, church, that is assuredly going to happen in time. But the idea, again, it's, it's meant to give us an urgency that the hour has come. But the hour has come to do what? He says to wake from sleep. Church, you and I as believers, the time has come. Time is short. The kingdom is coming. Christ is coming. And if our perspective goes there, not here, we sense the urgency in that. Paul tells us that we need to wake up. We need to wake up and look at what His Word says and respond to that Word in meaningful ways and act on that love. But when do we wake up? Physically. Think through that for a minute, just illustratively. When do we wake up? We wake up in the morning. Verse 12, he says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. It's time to wake up. Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 2, the prophet says this. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. Now church, if we're asleep and we're still in bed, does the glory of the Lord, is it seen upon us? The implication is no. You and I cannot love our neighbor in our, as ourselves if we're living in isolation. If we're not arising, if we're not waking up, if we're not engaging. As we talked last week, when it comes to subjecting ourselves to governing authorities, it's not just in idleness. We're meant to assume responsibility. We're to cooperate with that authority. When it comes to loving our neighbor as ourselves, it's an action word. You don't do that action if we're sitting in isolation, if we're sitting in hiding. We don't come to Salvation Church just to sit and wait for God to come back so we can be in heaven with Him. We were called to be on mission for Him. We have to wake up, church, in order to do that because the time is short. The time is now. So Isaiah then and Paul here, the time of Christ returning is growing nearer and nearer day by day. So the second half of verse 12, he says then, he says, So then, so then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. First Thessalonians 5, 5, Paul says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Verse 13, Paul says now to the Romans, he says, Then let us walk properly as in the daytime. 
The word walk properly, it's decently. We should wake up, put on our shoes, put on our clothes, and move about our day, but walk decently in it as in the daytime. What is the opposite of that? The implication is if we're to walk decently as in the daytime, what happens not in the daytime? And here Paul begins to lay it out for us. He says, we walk decently, properly in the daytime, but not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Now there's three pairs of words there that we oftentimes, when we read God's word, we can just slide through that list and understand it to be bad, but really not grab a hold of what Paul is saying and understanding the depth of the depravity that exists when we think of what is indecent. If you and I are to wake up and to walk decently and properly as in the daytime, if we are still living in the darkness, what does the darkness look like? What are the things that happen in the darkness? And Paul tells us clearly the things that happen in the darkness. He says orgies and drunkenness. Oftentimes we can hear the word orgies, and it is a bitter, offensive word. To the moral person, to the believer, it is deeply offensive because we understand generally what that word means. In the Greek, here's what that word means. When he says, not in orgies, an orgy is a revel or a carousal. Here's how Strong's definition describes this word. It says it's a nocturnal, notice nocturnal means at night, is a nocturnal and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows who after supper parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus or some other deity. And they sing and they play before houses of male and female friends, hence used generally of feasts and drinking parties that are protracted till late at night and indulge in revelry. He says orgies and drunkenness. This word implies in that culture a group of people who after supper, after having some dinner, feasting together, they go out and they get in the street and they party frantically and wildly, distraught with fear, going absolutely crazy in their drunkenness in the streets. At one point in time in, in history, in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, whenever the nation of Israel was, over, was ruled by the Ptolemies, in Greek society they would do these things and they would make Jews partake of this. And if they refuse, oftentimes they were killed for not joining in on this particular thing. As they would worship the idol of Bacchus. Bacchus was the Greek god. Another name for it is Dionysus. But it was a god of special abhorrence to the Jews. He was the god of wine. He was the god of the party. What they would do in these orgies is they would go out and they would give themselves over and worship the god of the party in the most indecent of manners. These rites sanctioned the most frantic excesses of revelry excitement. They were wild and distraught with fear, partying, full of drunkenness and intoxication. But what follows? What follows that idea? What follows that type of mindset and that type of worship of a false god? Paul tells us what follows orgies and drunkenness is sexual immorality and sensuality. The word for immorality there is koite. It literally means a couch or a bed. It's a place of lying down. That's what the word means. But taken with sexual immorality, it's a euphemism for sex outside of the marriage bed. And it's coupled with sensuality. Asogeia. 
which is unbridled lust. The idea here is as they would have these orgies and these parties and take into the streets and their drunkenness and their intoxication and their frantic craziness. And then they would be sexual immoral. immoral. They would be lying down with one another. But in a sense, with an unbridled lust, any person that is here or there that would fulfill the carnal desire that they would have, they would seek that person out over and over and over and over and over and time again throughout the night to fulfill the basis, the basic pleasure that they would have in whoever would have them. And then what follows, the natural outgrowth of this would be quarreling and jealousy. When you have a riotous crowd of people in their drunkenness pursuing one another for sexual pleasure in everyone and anyone they can find, Whenever they can't find someone, what happens? Jealousy and quarreling. Say a couple, two people go to this party together. One goes here, one goes there. And then they come back here, they don't come back here. And then it all gets confusing, but someone gets mad, and all of a sudden there's jealousy, there's quarreling, and there's fighting. Church, as we look at this description, does it sound familiar in any way? Forgive me, laughter is not what I'm going for. I'm so thankful that it's July 3rd and it's no longer June. Where do these things happen? First, they happen in the dark. And in a spiritual sense, they happen in darkness, not in the light. But church, the same God that was worshipped, the same dark spirit that was worshipped then is worshipped now. And in a physical sense, it's no longer in the darkness. It is in the street, and it's in the street in the daytime. Church, we are to wake up and be aware of such indecency. But the fact of the matter is that church, and here's what grips even me, is Paul tells the Corinthians, such were some of you. We began this morning with owe nothing to no one except to love them. If our neighbor is everyone, our neighbor is the person that would engage in such indecency. And God's word tells you and I, the believer, to love that person. In our flesh, we want to hate them. In our flesh, we can look at what's going on and be stirred to such anger. But you and I, I don't care who tells me any different. You and I, or at least for my own heart, I cannot have a righteous anger. I can't walk into a temple and see what's wrong and flip tables as Jesus did with a righteous anger. James 1 tells me that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, so I need to guard my heart. How do I guard my heart? Paul tells us. He says in verse 14, he says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Where does darkness not exist? Darkness does not exist in the light. If you're in darkness somewhere and you have a flashlight and you turn that flashlight on, Wherever that beam goes, what happens to darkness? Church, it doesn't exist. Wherever there's light, there is no darkness. Inherently, the physics of it even, it has been created in such a way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was void and formless and darkness hovered over the waters. But the Spirit of God hovered over the waters as well. And then God said, let there be light. And he separated, he cast out that darkness with his presence. And then the created order followed. 
Where darkness, where light exists, darkness cannot. John 1, verse 4 and 5. Most encouraging words I think we can have this morning, church. In him, Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Paul tells you and I to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What is the point of armor? The point of armor is to protect the body from an external force that seeks to do it harm. So if darkness is that external force that seeks to do us spiritual harm, Paul says to put on the armor of light. What is the armor of light? The armor of light is the Lord Jesus Christ, church. You and I, the way we move through this present darkness that we live in and be protected from it, how do we love our neighbor? How do we love the indecency that we see? It's by putting on Christ to see people the way he sees them. He certainly sees them in their sin. It would be foolish of us not to call sin, sin. We are to abhor what is evil, he said back in chapter 12, and hold fast to what is good. We need to recognize and discern evil when we see it, but that doesn't mean that we're meant to judge and condemn that evil. If they're in Christ, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. But we are to love and help people see their sin that they may, be, they correct, may correct their sin. You ever heard the term, the clothes make the man? In many cultures, a person's status can increase or decrease based on what they're wearing. Most of the time, when it comes to clothes, what we wear can, can elevate our spirit, just the individual spirit. We can, we can feel more confident based on what we're wearing. There's an emphasis that we all have as we are clothed. Originally in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, when brokenness happened, what did they do? They recognized their nakedness, they recognized their shame, and they sought to cover themselves. They sewed fig leaves together, but it was insufficient. What did God do? He saw the insufficiency in what they attempted to do. Remember the lawyer? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Who is my neighbor? All of it centered on self. He wanted to find out how he could save himself. Adam and Eve attempted to cover themselves. It was insufficient, so God gave them covering. Church, you and I are covering in these dark days is an armor of light. That armor of light is his son, Jesus Christ. And we are to put him on. We are to slide into those clothes and be confident in what we have. We're protected from the darkness in which we live so that we're able to not live in idleness, but we can engage in that world. Church, you and I, the way we love, the way we respond in all situations is a product of how we are recognizing what we have on. Church, you and I should be putting on Christ every single day. We should wake up in the morning because the day has come. Put shoes on our feet, put our armor on, and we move about the day. And then verse 14b, the second half. And in so doing, he says, And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. The word provision there is pronoia, but it's forethought or planning. Don't plan ahead for the flesh. Don't give any opportunity for the flesh to take hold in any way in your life. The gratification of the, of the desires of the flesh, that's, that's not our physical self, but the, the, the flesh, this, this proclivity to sin and the corruption of this world. 
Gratifying that is the opposite of love. Because it serves only the self. It's not sacrificial in any way when we're gratifying our desires and our fleshly desires. But love in its purest God-given sense is outward and it's sacrificial. And it is not done in the dark. It is done in the light. And the dark days in which you and I live, they need the light. So may we learn to love in the light. And Jesus, he came, the light of the world. The darkness has not overcome that light. He tells you and I that we are the light of the world because we're in him. And as we put him on, where light exists, darkness does not. We can be in dark places, but it will not have a hold on us in any way. We're protected by it, from it, by the Lord. And that should give us confidence when we feel an inability to love where we know that we should. Church, may we love in the light. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for um, the instruction of your word, Lord. And um, I ask, Lord, that you would that the weight of it would fall on our hearts. That as believers, Lord, that, that, that our consciences would be gripped by the truth of your word and not dismissing the difficulty that's there, Lord, but to understand, too, that the difficulty or ease with which we are to love other people is irrelevant to the command that you give us to love everyone, to owe nothing to anyone except to love them in every sense, Lord. Lord, and in our weakness, we will fail, Lord. But where we're weak, you are strong, Lord. Your grace is sufficient. Your mercies are new every day. And I pray, Lord, that you would position our hearts before you, Lord. That we would seek after ways. We would seek you, Lord, for clarity and understanding of the position of our heart in moments and situations that we're unsure of. When we read or see something that's happening somewhere, and we're spur, stirred to anger, Lord, I pray that, that, that mercy and compassion would fall on our hearts, Lord, that would be a prayer and an intercession for the darkness and the indecency that we see, Lord, that someone, they may encounter someone that would show them the truth of your word, Lord, that your spirit would open the eyes of the blind, that they would see the error of their ways, Lord, they'd be broken for their sinfulness, and Lord, and they would repent and they would turn to you, Lord. And you would find glory in that, Lord. You use us to do that. But I pray, Lord, that you help us to start with our own hearts. To seek you there. And from there, allow you to lead us. In these dark days in which we live. But Lord, the time is near. The hour has come. And if we live with that in mind, Lord, we can trust you in that. Lord, that can free us up in many ways. And I just uh, pray for your help in that as you lead us from this place this morning. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.